This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends new cartridges before you run out. So you never have to think about ink. For details, visit hp.com slash instant ink Spotify. Conditions apply. Hello everyone, and welcome to Chapter Tactics. This is your 40k podcast that focuses on playing Warmer 40k competitively at all levels of the game. I am your host, Mr. Petey Pob, and with me I have the two scholarly gentlemen co-hosts on the podcast, uh, Senor Brandon Grant. Hello everyone. And Monsieur Scari. Hello, denizens. Uh, this is This is a... Uh, Chapter tactics, Scary. There are oh. no denizens here. Oh. There are just listeners. Oh well, I know that you're hiding out there somewhere, denizens. Oh, you're absolutely there. You're a denizen <laughs> of Scarred Cast. Comment in the comment section. Everyone's a denizen. Everyone. That's it's true. We're all denizens. Wishes they they were in the dark city having some fun. I think we're all kind of in the dark city of our minds, Scary. <laughs> Philosophically, so we're all denizens. <laughs> okay. Speaking of dark city of our minds. Uh, we're going to get a little scholarly and a little psychological, philosophical. Uh, anyways, the main topic today is going to be heuristics. Uh, for those of you who might not be familiar with that term, heuristics are a practice or a uh, exercise in order to uh, recognize patterns and in, in games like competitive games or anything really, uh, and then uh, using those patterns to um, maximize efficiency when making decisions. Or, or I maximize, uh, lower the time it takes to, for decision making. So a simple, simple example of a heuristic is uh, something like a chess opening. So with chess, you have these very specific openings uh, where basically all the moves up to a certain point are planned out. Uh, so it's in order to speed up the game, it helps really well in quick timed chess games um, where you want to get to the late game or the mid game quicker. Uh, because that's where the player skill matters the most. And that's where you have to make the most decisions is in that mid and late game. Uh, so if you're playing a chess opening that you know really well, you can very quickly bust out that opening um, and then get to a point or a line where your opponent's decision uh, might be, they might have to take longer to make the decision, which saves you time and more time to make really complicated decisions in the future. Uh, so there's a ton of stuff. Brandon Brandon Grant actually suggested this. He's got a whole spiel that he's going to talk about. So that's just a very, very basic understanding of heuristics. But it absolutely translates to competitive 40k. And not only that, but it also translates to just 40k in general. And I think that if you practice basic heuristics, what we talk about today... Uh, it'll help in all aspects of your game, not just tournament 40k, but also uh, if you're having a little trouble winning games, maybe you've got a narrative game coming up against your rival who who runs uh, Tyranids or something, and then you just want to 
get a little leg up on them. So this translates to all levels of the game, uh, which we like to talk about on this podcast. Now, before we get into that, this podcast was brought to you by the Frontline Gaming Network, where you can listen to Chapter Tactics, Stats, 40k Stat Center, The Art of War, Signals from the Frontline, and where you can check out FrontlineGaming.org, where you can purchase all your tabletop goodies. Uh, Reese would shut off the podcast if I didn't mention this. So we are having our Black Friday sale right now. All of our mats are on sale. Go to FrontlineGaming.org. Take advantage of that. We only have one or two sales a year max. Um, all the 6 by 4 mats are $15 off, so it's a great deal. Uh, you know, Black Friday sale is going to last until Cyber Monday, December 2nd, I believe is, is the cutoff date. So go go there um, and check that out. Also, unfortunately, we did run out of Sisters of Battle boxes. Um, so this is kind of like a secondhand tip, uh, so to speak, is even though the Sisters of Battle box sets are sold out, uh, GW will release those in parts in the future. Uh, the reason why I'm telling you this is because I see a lot of people on eBay pre-selling it or selling it for significantly more than MSRP, which is $210. I understand that that the sisters are coming right now and there's a lot of hype, um, but I've seen boxes you know, go for sale as much as $300. Um, which is which is silly. It's it's a thirty three percent markup on on a on a box, right? It's like, you know. So just uh, be patient. Uh, I'm sure people. I'm sure you can maybe find a buddy who has the codex, so you can look at the rules if you are a sisters player. Um, but GW is definitely going to split up that box into more you know affordable pieces. Um, but it's sold out for for good until they come out with more. So um, just beware of uh, scalpers and overpaying. Um, also, if you're able to get one of those boxes from Frontline Gaming, congratulations. Uh, we only got a limited amount, and so only a few were able to go out to people. Um, and then one final thing, uh, if you want to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash chapter tactics. Uh, every month we give away something to the patrons, uh, and you can also sign up for our Facebook group on our Patreon, where you get to ask us questions that we answer at the end of every month. This week is actually Patreon Appreciation uh, or tomorrow is Patreon Appreciation Day. So to show a little appreciation for our patrons over at Chapter Tactics, uh, I decided to have a poll. Uh, it's still not too late to sign up if you sign up for our Patreon today. Tomorrow the poll will run basically through Wednesday. Uh, and basically the poll is what should we do for Patreon Appreciation Day? Things like uh, have a battle report uh, live between some co-hosts or uh, uh, win something cool or give a, a special prize giveaway where I'm going to give away some really cool stuff uh, or uh, make me do something embarrassing like wear a dress or whatever. The sky's the limit. Um, not literally. I, you know, I, I don't do look, don't look good skydiving, but maybe. Um, <laughs> actually, painting a model while skydiving would be a really funny challenge. Anyways, uh, and then um, so many more uh, polls there if you want us to do that. Um, some, you know, we can mix and match, but basically want to show a little appreciation and love to the patrons who just support us every month. Uh, and then, of course, for our giveaway this month, we're not doing anything. However, I do have a big giveaway coming for December, which is why we're not giving away anything away for November. Uh, so you can sign up for that, too. All right. It's a lot of announcements, a lot of stuff. So that out of the way, let's have some fun. Let's have some fun. Let's talk about. So I'm diving right in. I just want to caution everyone. This is not an episode where I'm trying to overinflate your heads. We're going to make it fun and simple. Um, but the main goal of this whole thing is how can I make better decisions at the table without having to juggle 
all of the calculations that are going on in the background with rolling dice. Because, you know, when you have 90 boys making um, attacks in a turn and they each get four swings and you add up all the dice rolls, it, it's it's too complicated sometimes to figure out, okay, what what can I expect to happen from all this? Um, how much variance is there? What At what point do I have a 90% chance of succeeding in whatever it is I'm trying to do? A lot of that is ridiculous. And if you're trying to calculate it on the table, forget it. So this is about how can I simplify this in order to make it easier to make the move that I need to in order to win? Um, so to start off with, let's go with a story. Um, last week, I tried Keyforge for the first time. And for those who are not aware... Uh, it is similar to Magic the Gathering. It is a deck the, uh, that's pre-constructed that you buy. You get 30 cards. They're all random. And the deck is supposed to be similar in power level, though this isn't always the case to every other deck out there, and all the decks are unique. And there's 370 unique cards in the game. And, uh, yes, I mean, you just play creatures, and you try and forge keys faster than your opponent and see who wins. And just from playing that game, I immediately went into analysis mode and was thinking, what would it take to be ridiculously good at Keyforge? And first of all, you should know what all the cards in the game do. Um, second, you should know all the combinations that you can expect from cards in the game, because there's mechanics in the game that work really well together. So for example, uh, the deck I had allowed me to return cards to my opponent's hand, and then another card allowed me to have both players discard their cards and then redraw hands. So a combo is I'll return stuff to your hand. Yes, you could replay it, except I just shuffled it back into your discard pile and you have to draw a new hand. So, okay, that's a good combo. So you need to be aware of all these combinations and abilities in the game. Great. And then on top of it, the decks in competitive player open. So you can see exactly what cards are in your opponent's deck and vice versa. So you need to be able to look at your opponent's deck and in about 30 seconds figure out all the combos to be on the lookout for, and then you need to card count. So you need to know uh, how many cards are left in your deck, what cards you've already played, what cards you've archived, which is set aside cards that you can then draw at any time, um, what cards your opponent has archived, what cards your opponent has left in their deck, and what cards are in their discard pile. Because the discard piles are all open information. So based on all of that, that should be informing your gameplay at the highest levels. And it made me think, holy cow, keeping track of all of that stuff sounds crazy. There must be simple ways to do it. And then it made me think of 40K, because in 40K, we face extremely complex decisions all the time. How are these units going to interact? If I do this, then my opponent does that, and then I do... You almost... You're almost trying to predict the outcome of a six-term game of 40k with a lot of random chance from the very beginning it becomes incredibly complex so how can we make that more simple so step one um i'm a big fan of excel spreadsheets and 40k has definitely made me better at statistics than i would be without it and i highly recommend here's your big brain moment i'm sorry i promised there wouldn't be um, Khan Academy, so K-H-A-N. If anyone wants to learn about probability or statistics or just refresh their math knowledge, Khan Academy is free, and you go there and take some tests, and then the Khan Academy says, hey, you might want to know about 
these subjects. Based on what you know, this is an accessible topic, and you can do them in 15-minute chunks. But regardless, if you can figure out how to do the statistics behind the game to calculate average die rolls, or you're like me and you just have an Excel spreadsheet hard calculate every outcome for you, um, you can get some really good background information. So, specific example, um, I had a wonderful game against Junior Aflihi who beat me at the Bay Area Open, and I had calculated ahead of time that, okay, if I face an Imperial Knight's army, I want to be able to defeat one Imperial Knight with a 4-plus invul per turn which is actually not that easy to do. Think of it as a damage test for your army list. So I'd gone over the math and assumed, okay, um, I'll take the old grudges warlord trait, which allows me to reroll wounds against one enemy model. Um, all of my tank commanders will shoot at the um, enemy knight, um, and they'll all use the reroll ones to hit. And then I calculated 28 wounds expected. Great. And then I had um, a Basilisk in that list as well. And I could double shoot, reroll to hit with that Basilisk and expect five damage. And I'm like, okay, so I expect to do 33 damage to a knight. And I just have this number in the back of my head when I go into the game. So I make a game plan around my list can kill one knight a turn. Now, in reality, um, that didn't happen. Uh, Junior's knight lived with 14 wounds remaining. So dice can still mess up your game plans. But I went into the game knowing approximately how much my army could do to an Imperial Knight if I had the right Warlord traits and abilities and so on. So even before you step up to the table, if you have thought of the enemies you're most terrified of ahead of time and done some simple math like, um, can I kill a Space Marine... A repulsor. Um, what does it take to do that? Um, can I kill Space Marine Centurions? What does it take to do that? What if they're buffed? How much harder is it to kill them? At a certain point, should I just stop shooting them because it's not even worth it? If you do all of that ahead of time, you'll know, okay, when the Centurions are uh, uh, one-up armor save with transhuman physiology, I need to stop shooting them because the damage I'm doing to them is so small, I may as well shoot at something else. Great. Whatever the math is behind all these decisions, you need to know that ahead of time. And a great way um, for some of the non-specific scenarios to, is to think of equivalence. So, for example, um, there's guardsman equivalence. So if I shoot against something approximately as tough as a guardsman, how much damage should I expect to do? If I shoot at something approximately as tough as a Space Marine, how much damage should I expect to do? Uh, if I shoot at something approximately as tough as a Repulsor, how much damage should I expect to do? Um, and that will help you be less disappointed. So for example, if you have a melee army and you want to start splitting the attacks of your melee unit, uh, my advice is to split in a way that you 50% overkill on average whatever it is you're swinging at. So there's been times where it's, well, if I roll perfectly average, I'll kill these three characters. Instead, I'll split and I'll for sure kill two of them, even if I roll poorly-ish. 
but the third one is still going to be there. I'm not going to be able to deal with them that round. Um, so I know I've been talking a lot. Did you guys have any ideas? <laughs> There's something <clears throat> that I use. It's a Math Hammer app that you can find on the App Store. Oh, thank goodness. And uh, it's really cool. Um, I, um, uh, it, you can actually you can put in different units, all the different weapons that they have versus what targets. You can actually factor in things like um you know feel no pains and reroll wounds or you know damage modifiers or a whole it's like got a variety of different things you can save all the categories so you can have like the units in your army all saved up um in the app itself as you sort of use the app and then have like your 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 enemies or the things that you're trying to look at when i was looking at seeing how much damage i really needed to kill an iron hands repulsor with the uh the stone right i i was able to kind of really keep track of like how much firepower i was going to need to put down for it essentially this is all really really good by the way um so so, uh i have two points i want to make but before i make them i want to rewind a little bit Uh, one thing you hear often that top players say or competitive 40k podcasts or videos or whatever talk about uh when in terms of getting better is practice 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 makes perfect and and the reason why uh, is because you develop heuristics right and so that's actually something that when i was thinking about this uh, is something tangible that you can look at to measure how good you are getting at the game right because it's one thing to hear sean nade and say oh well all you have to do is play this list a thousand times like yeah like i I get it but what do i tangibly get from that Uh, and this is one thing you can actually get is is you develop heuristics you develop these mental strategies and these exercises to make your decision making more decisive uh, and to make critical decisions or give you more time for critical decisions in the future of the game when you actually need them uh this is something that i know players who have a problem with the clock uh brandon i know you had a problem with the clock i know uh personally a really good player named brett perkins who had a serious problem with chess clocks um and and i saw actually both of you kind of overcome that too uh both of you got a little more decisive in your decision making i know for uh brett he got better with his decision making as he played the same army over and over now obviously he doesn't really play much anymore he's he's kind of stuck out in hawaii so he can't really travel as well as he can but with you personally i have actually seen you develop as a faster player um and then of course other players as well who complain about the chess clock or maybe who who know that the chess clock is their weakness maybe they don't complain about it but they know that that particular aspect of the game is something that they're weak to uh, either it's because of the player itself themselves or the army heuristics are a great way to hone your efficiency and get a little faster and get a little more efficient so you know and sorry sorry to interrupt Brand, uh, sorry to interrupt, but Brandon did have a good point as well, and it's not just about like mathematics and things mm-hmm. like that. There's a whole like as we dive into the t- subject of that, it's not just kind of having an idea of what moves you on awake, but it's also having access to tools that'll that just help you in general. Whether it's using different colored dice for different weapons, yep. or having like your uh, like if you're an orc player, having like different. Uh, dice little bags or cups or whatever with like pre-counted dice and things like that that'll help you in game yeah and and i think we're actually just scratching the surface here so this kind of brings me to the two points i wanted to make uh the first point is that heuristics can actually uh if you look at your 
army list, you can actually develop heuristics really early on. Uh, so with the team tournament that I played in with Relentless D, I ran an Ultramarines list that I knew was designed to kill one tough thing. Every single game, I knew that I could kill one knight, one Baneblade variant, whatever, one thing that that I that after that my army could not kill anything, and that was just because of the relic and just because of multiple reasons the, the way I built the army, and I was okay with that. Uh, because I had a very specific goal for what my army, what my team wanted me to do. I needed to go into matchups, take out the biggest thing that could hurt my army, and then play a slow, grindy game and make sure my opponent didn't score as, score as little points as possible on me. And I, you know, controlled the board and killed their objective holders. So I went into every single game at that team tournament knowing that. And so my decision-making was precise. I was able to kill one knight, and after that, I ignored the rest of their vehicles with the rest of the models I couldn't shoot. Uh, it, it was a critical part of, I think, of my success and our team's success because we tied for first place. Uh, another thing that you can look at in list building is your average toughness value and your average overall durability. Uh, the more the more variables you add to that, meaning if you have an all T7, all T8 vehicle army, but you have maybe two units that you don't reserve that are like large infantry units, uh, your opponents, all of your opponent's guns are going to shoot those two units. Now that is a predictive, predictable variable, right? Because, you know, your opponents are obviously going to shoot those two units with the guns specifically designed to kill those units. However, when you start to add more variants, toughness eight, toughness five, MSU, things like that can get a lot more difficult to predict what your opponent's going to shoot at, what your opponent's going to do. Um, so that could be another way of using your army list, army list to develop heuristics to make uh, make your decision-making more decisive. Uh, and then finally, the second point is uh, I want to talk about deployment, and this is where I kind of want to leave it. Oh, yes, uh, please. D- deployment. So I, I'm, a, I'm a chess player and I'm a magic player at heart. I actually have... Even when I play Magic, there's actually very little variables that I factor in when I'm playing Magic. There's um, a lot of the decks I play have low variance, have high efficiency, uh, like things like control decks, things that play the long game, things that play the predictability game. Um, And so that's just kind of how I play Magic. And so I look at the deployment zone in the same way that I look at a game of chess or I would look at a game of Magic. Uh, the deployment zone is where I have the most control of the game. I feel personally that it's my strongest aspect of how I play uh, is in deployment and the movement plays or things where I can control uh, and not where variants or weird things like dice will like tilt me or um, basically lead to poor decision making. That's where I fail ultimately is when is when I have to make decisions that are based off variants. Um, so when you're deploying and when you're in the movement phase, uh, it's really important to look at... Um, to go into it with a game plan. Uh, if you build a very simple list, like if you're building a Tau gun line, uh, you know where your auras are. So, you know, you place down the most important stuff, like your, uh, um, a foundational units first. Uh, and then from there, your deployment should be very simple. It should be foundational units with auras, bubble wrap, big units. Uh, maybe if you deploy it in a line of sight blocking or a, a line of like a gun line, or a, what do you call it? When, when you have a, a corridor to shoot through with no line of sight, that whatever that like if you've got a gun line list i think you understand what i'm trying to say though uh so the deployment zone is where you can develop a lot of really good heuristics for your army and i think a good way to develop those heuristics uh is to just deploy and get certain armies and then just practice that so don't play the game 
just deploy, 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 have your opponent deploy first, have you deploy first, do alternating deployments, do I deploy first, you deploy first, uh, do it against different variables of terrain. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's really good at developing uh, the key things you need to so that you can go into any matchup and kind of figure out a general idea of how you're going to deploy. Uh, also, knowing your tournament, the terrain that you're going to for the tournament helps out a lot with this. If you know that there's Nova terrain, for example, you know there's two big L-shaped ruins in the center, uh, and that makes predicting where you're going to play and where your opponent's going to play a lot easier. Um, so it's it's just, the, I scratch the surface here, and I, I feel like I've also talked along a lot about it, um, but uh, Skari, you talk the least, and you are by far a much better player than I am, and uh, you also, I know, develop these heuristics because you play a lot, uh, and you don't just play Dark Eldar, you play other armies too, and you're do, constantly yeah. talking about the game. So <clears throat> Something are, that I think you know, is really important to to stress when you're talking about heuristics is the is about mental um uh it's mental strain really because a lot of the times you will like make decisions in the heat of a moment that are not in your best interest if you're mentally tired so when you say i had to think variants and i have to make decisions in terms of this and that <clears throat> It's not just about making decisions. It's about what you do as you're doing those decisions to sort of keep your mental capacity at its highest. Yeah. So, for example, when I'm rolling, you know, I, I'm going to shoot you with, I don't know, a full rapid-firing squad of Cablite Warriors <clears throat> out of a Raider or something, right? And you shoot, you have, you know, 20 dice in your hand. You know, I'll grab the 20 dice, I'll count them up, I hit on threes, say they're flayed skulls, so they're re-rolling ones. I don't roll 20 dice, then count every single hit, and then make a mental note of that, and then roll to wound and count every single wound. I'll literally just pick up all the, all the re-rolls, I'll re-roll the re-rolls, pick up the misses, put the misses aside, grab all the hits, roll the hits without counting a single dice. And it might not seem like something that... You know, it might not seem very intuitive at first, but it does one of two things. Number one, I'm using not using mental strain on stuff that has no, like, has no bearing on the variance. Like me counting how many hits I get has no has doesn't actually solve or help me in any shape or form. And secondly, it helps focus my mentality on what I want to focus on later in the game, which will be, you know, um, the actual like wounds or if I need to shoot at something else or whatever. And if I go around thinking, oh man, I should have hit with 15 of these and I only hit with 10, like I don't care because I'm not counting. And then it keeps my my mental state fresh and more positive throughout the game. Yep, if that makes sense. That's a great yeah. point. And that goes back into the first two things, which is if you're not sure how many bolters you need to shoot to get rid of that termagant squad, that's mental load. If you're not sure how to deploy your army defensively against this particular foe, that's mental load. So the more of this stuff you can figure out ahead of time and make up simple rules for, the better. So, um, and that goes something as simple. I love what you said about deployments as well. You know, something that uh, that I love doing, especially when I have a new army or I'm developing an army. It's not about. It's not just about the models that I have in the particular army. A lot of times. 
you know, people look at the armies I'm running and they kind of, you know, they might, they might look like, especially I, I want to say top notch players that don't necessarily run the cookie cutter style list. You know, we all have the example of Lichtershame that, you know, was a list that just came out of nowhere and just seemingly was terrible, but it played very well. Um, when I develop a list, the first thing I'll do is I'll clear my gaming table or a surface or whatever, and I'll put the army that I'm thinking of running um, on the table itself. And I'll just have, I'll get like a, like a mental, a mental gauge of the army itself. And from there, you can kind of see how well it fits in the deployment zone. You know, how, what auras you need to worry about. You know, you can kind of go, okay, if this is Dawn of War, this is like a generic sort of deployment that I want to do in terms of not necessarily to counter the opponent because you never really know who you're going to play against. But even something as simple as, you know, this guy has this aura and I need to make sure that he deploys in a position where even with a movement, he can get in range of the thing I need the aura on on the first turn. Like, I've seen a lot of newer players put their models on the table and then go, oh man, my, you know, my guy that needs to, that I need this relic for or whatever is all the way in the corner. Well, I, I guess I've wasted him for a turn. You know, and that just takes a little bit of preparation so that in the heat of the moment, you just go, this guy has to be in this sort of general spot every time. Mm. Yeah, and and actually, the, uh, roles or giving roles to your units is another really good way to help out with that, uh, right? We are these these three units are designed to hold a backfield objective, or these three units are designed to keep my opponent in their deployment zone, or or whatever, right? Assigning roles to your units is another great way, or another great heuristic, uh, to help simplify your decisions uh, and be more decisive. Yep, and another heuristic, just very quickly, is what secondaries do my uh, units score if I can't actually get secondaries from killing enemy units? Because um, I feel like that one oftentimes takes a long time to decide on. I've definitely run into that where I'm like, huh, I can't get more than three points on any secondary. Uh, what secondaries do I pick? So having that in mind ahead of time also helps. Um, and then I think we're almost ready to move on to the other topic. But the thing I want to mention is um, all of the purpose of this is if you're doing homework ahead of time to make sure that you get to the table and you make as few decisions at the table as possible because so many things ahead of time were worked out and you already know all the right answers. Um, and one of the ways of doing that is taking enormous shortcuts so you really don't have to do that much math at the table at all. So let me give an example. Um, so White Scar's Centurions are a new thing and I'm going to pick on them right now because... They are move four, and people keep taking Assault Centurions. And you're like, <laughs> but they're move four. Why are people taking Assault Centurions when they just move four inches? Well, let's add up all the bonuses that White Scar Centurions can get. So first of all, you can get plus three to their advance and charge distances with the right buffs, if you get all the buffs off, which is pretty significant. So now we're move seven and we're charging plus three, so now we're almost move 10. That's really good. That's a lot faster than move four. On top of that, white scars can advance and charge, so now we're adding a plus d6. And on top of that, white scars can 
spend command points to make it a 3d6 pick the two highest charge instead of um, 2d6. And of course, you can CP reroll the advance move and one of the dice for the charge roll. So the question is, what's the threat range for that White Scar's Assault Centurion unit? How far away do I have to be before the odds of them completing the charge are less than, let's say, 90%? And if you're at the table and you've never seen this problem for the first time, unless you're some sort of math prodigy, um, I don't think you're going to be able to figure that out. And you might make the wrong decision. You might underestimate how far they go or overestimate how far they go. Um, and there's numerous examples of this. So back in the day with double moving aberrants that advance and charge, uh, coming in from deep strike reserve with uh, cult ambush charges, um, 3d6 charges with blood letters or blood angels. There's all these charges that you have to figure out and they're all different abilities, right? So how do we figure out what are the odds of me being out of range? And the heuristic that I'm using, assume every dice is a five. Huh. And actually that comes out to, if you stay slightly farther than that, so a tenth of an inch farther than assuming every dice they roll is a five, they have about a 10% chance across the board of getting to you. So if you can come up with simple rules like that, where I literally don't have to do math, except how many dice are you rolling? Okay, they're all fives. Okay, I need to be that much farther away. So in this case, I would need to be, um, let's see. Well, first of all, the other thing about white scars is they stu do, still do have to be within 12 inches to declare a charge. So you can always do that too. But in this case, uh, they move seven plus D six. Well, plus five, that's 12. And then they charge 10, 22 inches. Um, plus three for the charge. Plus three for the charge is 25 inches, which is actually farther than they can declare a charge. So in that case, White Scar Centurions, if they can declare a charge, have better than a 10% chance of getting in, which is insane. Um, something to be aware of, which is why they're the exception to the rule. But for everyone else who doesn't have plus three to their charge rolls, assume every die is a five. Stay out of that range. You'll be fine. Yeah, and and um, I usually go one step further with Brandon. I usually just stay a hair out of maximum charge distance. Um, <laughs> unless I absolutely need to next turn get within three inches of an objective. Uh, that's it. Even even if I can within, get within shooting range, I might not necessarily uh, do make that decision. Uh, but almost always, I stay out of I stay out of maximum threat range, just in case my opponent throws box cars. Uh, unless I 100% need to get onto an objective in the following turn. But most of the time, for with most units, if you move your normal move and advance, you should be able to get onto most objectives in most positions. And still remain out of maximum distance to your opponent's charge roll. Uh, and if the objective is farther away than 6 plus your advance roll, uh, you weren't getting to that objective ever. Or into yep. in a next turn anyways. So there, so, so there, usually, there are usually two heuristics that I use for that. Number one is your, your, your uh, way, Pablo, which is I measure the maximum total distance that they can Assume all sixes. Go. Yeah, so, you know, and then I just make sure that that is just physically impossible. 
So I'll stay outside of the possible ability for them to get in there in the first place. And the second one I do is I will create my own zone by putting a little tiny cheap screen in front of them and essentially stop them from going anywhere in the first place. And that's actually another interesting thing that um, that I wish more people uh, talked about and, and used. Uh, and that's things like like just blocking your opponent's movement. Um, that's why things like Thunderfire Cannons are so powerful. Uh, yep. right? So I played one game where I sacrificed a unit of Infiltrators, infiltrated them up nine inches away from my opponent. They did go first. However, that unit of Infiltrators was able to cut off two Lord Discordants, or a Lord Discordant and a Knight, excuse me, from advancing further up the board. Uh, and then I measured it out. That Lord Discordant wasn't going to get me until my turn three, or or my opponent's turn three. Uh, so I was able to just ignore that Lord Discordant completely and focus on other things because I knew I didn't have to worry about it until turn three. Uh, because in turn three is when I would need to look at it and look at its position because the following turn is when it'll charge me. So it, it, you know it, it really helped me out with just I spent 110 points just not have to worry about a unit or two units for a turn charging me. So that's another thing you can do. Um, one other thing I want to talk about, and I do want to get into like, I really like the idea of us just talking about general heuristics that we use in our, our day-to-day 440k tournaments. Um, although there is a lot of that in the patron questions too. So, um, you know, we're, we kind of can split that conversation up. But another thing is something I, I want to call social heuristics. And that's the idea of communicating with your opponent to prevent further arguments in the future, right? So one thing you can do um, that that Scary and I do when we when we assume all dice rolls are sixes for charge threat range is Scary and I can say, "Hey, I'm at maximum distance, right? You cannot physically charge me." And then you measure it out and show them, like, "You can't charge me. Don't do this." And you stare at them, maybe say it like eight times. <laughs> so if I they just try simply to say that uh, my intention is that you cannot charge me yeah, with the so much, full charge distance. Do you that's agree? That's so much more efficient. <laughs> and then they say yes, and yeah. you're like, okay, you yeah, agree, I'll, good. And yeah, then obviously, I, don't say it eight times. Yeah, <laughs> but but uh, but yeah, yeah. Just something as simple as communication. Do you agree? Uh, and you can do this with anything. Anything that's if. This is why I really like playing by intent and why I feel like I can play by intent with anyone if you're just, you know, if you just have good communication about it. Uh, of course, there will be someone who who just refuses to, you know, play by intent. Maybe they just they just uh, want to make the measurement when the action happens or I don't know. I, I've seen some people flat out just like ignore their opponent when they say they can't charge uh, and then try to measure it out and try to make the charge anyways and then i've seen in, in some rare unfortunately toxic situations where the opponent made the charge anyways and then the uh player would be like oh hey hey remember i said you couldn't charge me and that led to blah 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 back and forth uh just if you remember to either uh if you have one of those opponents then the heuristic would not be clarify intent but it would be for sure 100 percent you know, make sure that you're out of, like, it's not even, like, don't be a tenth, be, like, half an inch off. Or, or you know, just make 100% sure that you're out of that range. And then keep keep an eye on keep an eye on the, the board state and make sure that no models get moved around or anything. Um, and then just always keep measuring that. So. Pre-measuring is another good heuristic, too. Just yep. pre-measuring is great. Just measure before you pick up the model. Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, it's uh, really useful. Uh, so... 
Brandon, what are what are some other things that you've do you've uh, come up with other heuristics that you've come up with to kind of maximize your efficiency? And I actually want to talk about uh, shooting in particular because you did talk about variables, you did talk about um, tools and stats, things that you use to determine how much damage output or how much damage output you can receive and dish out. However, I know you and Mike Snyder have an interesting way of calculating out and uh, maximizing the efficiency of your shooting phase. Uh, so do you want to talk a little bit more about some things that you do during the shooting phase, and specifically with your dice? Um, yes. So uh, for when it comes to target priority, for example, um, people oftentimes split fire because they expect... I'm just going to hit and wound and you're not going to save with everything and I'll get maximum damage. And then they end up not killing either unit and perhaps not even if you're shooting at vehicles, uh, degrading them. And that feels, feels bad, man, uh, when that happens. So my advice is assume you'll roll poorly and then you won't be disappointed. So um, one of the ways you can actually make your list more efficient with not even looking more efficient on paper, is just having stuff to pick up the spare. So, for example, there's quite a few games where um, Eldar jets, especially the Dark Eldar ones, will fly over in front of me and start bombing everything that I have. And uh, I'll reduce one to maybe one or two wounds left. But I will have moved my infantry forward so that they're in rapid-fire range of those jets. And, you know, 36 guns might take a wound off a plane they might not they might do nothing but instead of having to shoot an entire battle tank weapon at this flyer to pick off one or two wounds i'll just shoot these las guns sure they're not super efficient but that leaves my battle tank to go shoot at something else more important so having little stuff to pick up the spare is excellent and there's a few armies that are better at this than others like tau with units of two gun drones flying around they can pick up the spare pretty easily. Um, but yes, aim to overkill the target slightly, however much you personally feel is best. I try and aim for, let's call it 20% on shooting, because you can pick up the spare, and 50% in melee, because you almost certainly can't. Um, especially in melee when they interrupt you. Oh my gosh. So yeah, in melee, try and throw more attacks than you really think you're going to need so that the enemy can't just interrupt and kill you um, and be very, very, very wary of splitting attacks. Um, did I get that, Pablo, or did you have something else in mind? Uh, no, I was... Uh, you got it. Um, there's actually... I realized I was thinking about it hearing you talk that there's actually even more. Um, like, things like your command point dice that you keep... You, so those of you who haven't played Brandon, haven't watched him play, he keeps a separate dice tray with just his command points in them. And this is especially important when he had like a bajillion command points when he was using the Castellan list with all the CP regening and stuff. So he just, when he used the CP, he would just take a die out, roll it, and then boom, that was it, right? So it was, it was just really cool. That's just like a little heuristic that um, CP management and other things like that can take away from... Uh, your overall efficiency of the game uh, wound counters also wound tracking I've seen some people get bogged down in just the, the stats or the keeping of you know their wounds on models and it just gets really you know overwhelming and on top of maybe not being accurate uh, which is an issue but also uh, they might focus on you know moving the dice or something instead of focusing on, on a decision or thinking about the future of the game or something so 
No, yeah. I think you make a good point there, but uh, it's in terms of, and I agree with you, Brandon. When it comes to like one of the heuristics that I that I definitely adhere to is that focusing fire. Like even if there's two guys left in a unit and I have a ravager left to shoot, one of the last things I want to do is split the fire on the ravager, only have one guy survive because my disintegrators decided to not roll to wound well or not roll to hit well. So I will more often than not put like an entire ravager into like one or two guys just to make sure that they just do not survive. Especially if it's the last thing you have to shoot. Make sure it overkills it. Uh, So you can afford to split the ravager into three squads of two guys as long as you still have a bunch of venoms to shoot that can pick off the last guy who survives, a hundred percent. So and that and that's and that that comes with more practice than anything. But it is like a rule of thumb of mine is I just focus fire, and a lot of times I'll just overkill the target, and that's just something that has remained true to my way of playing the game for very like many many years, and it's something that has done me very well over time. Um, one heuristic I have uh, in the shooting phase is that I usually like to shoot shorter range weapons first. So just in general, if, I, if I'm if i going through a particularly complicated shooting phase, uh, you know, it's, setting aside time for target priority is is useful. But if I'm running long time, I rule of thumb shoot shorter range unit, shorter range shooting weapons first because they have the least amount of targets generally to shoot at versus something like a Thunderfire cannon that can hit the whole board. So uh, a good flex or a good add-on to what you two said is a good flex unit is something like a whirlwind or a thunderfire cannon or a unit with long range and a high ability to shoot multiple targets on the field because they could be a really good flex unit to pick up things that your other your other units leave out which is also why thunderfire cannons are just really good right now because they, they they not only can just lay into horde units uh and you know lower movement but also at ap2 Strength 5 AB2, they're really good at, at picking off the last wounds off something or uh, clearing the last couple wounds off a unit that maybe you, you couldn't quite overkill or couldn't quite kill. Uh, and, you know, they have such long range and they're they're so Yeah, hard Strength to 5 kill, is the it? best strength in the game. Yeah. So Actually, uh, you know, it goes going on that note, one of the things I always like to do is I like to hit with stuff that doesn't have a choice. I shoot with weapons that don't have a choice of targets first. Yep. And that is something that has also remained just as true as the um, focusing fire. So if I have like a pistol within, you know, 12 or 6 inches or something, I'll usually start with them first. And then I'll move on to stuff that has choices. Because you never know. Sometimes, you know, that one thing will... We'll we'll do some damage, you know, and it's better to do with like do something with that than to have them sitting there doing nothing later in the phase. You know, it's just a it's just a way of being efficient with your unit choices. Yeah, and and sometimes you know sometimes it won't come up. Sometimes right, you'll shoot your splinter pistol or whatever, do one damage off a rhino, its only legal target or something, and it won't come into effect in the game. But there's other times when you're when your random character. Or, you know, a single model that has a line of sight to one model in your opponent's army just manages to go ham and they just do a lot more damage than you were expecting, uh, which opens the door up for other units too to shoot at, um, maybe change their targets. So it's uh, it's all really good. I feel like we can go on and on. Um, so I think I'm going to stop us here unless either of you have very specific well, why don't we, um Why don't we just talk, uh, maybe do a list of our top like 
uh, three heuristic tools that okay. we use in game. Starting with you, Scar. Like okay, so my first tool is having my dice in one spot. And it doesn't sound like a lot. Like, I literally keep my dice in, like, my back pocket. <laughs> because it's easy for me to grab my dice and roll them and not have them all over the table. That's, like, one of my first heuristic tools is just having a place where I can keep my dice all organized in one spot. Uh, the, do, you, do you want to list all three of them or do you want us to alternate? Uh, yeah, I'll do my first. Now it's, uh, now it's Pablo's turn. Okay, all right. Well, uh, one thing I <laughs> on the same dice topic, and this is something I've done in 40K for a while, is I find the most common dice that my army rolls, uh, and then I grab that number of dice. So if it's 10, like if I have a lot of... Uh, 10 man guard infantry then that are rolling at shooting a maximum range i'll grab 10 dice and always have that handy and then the other thing is is i try to keep the amount of dice on the field equal to the highest possible roll i could make so this was a little hard with my ultramarines when i ran them because aggressors were shooting you know a bajillion times um but if you don't have things like aggressors it can be really handy uh just limiting the amount of dice you put onto the table so uh you know that if your maximum that you're shooting is 40 shots with primaris intercessors at rapid fire two then you know when you have to shoot that you just pick up all the dice all the d6s and you just roll them and you're like this is 40 dice i know it is because i counted it out earlier or it's all i have in my box or my my dice container or whatever right so um i i try to i try to make the n- numbers of dice that i grab or have on the table obvious numbers that i'm going to use not just random numbers so i'm not counting all the time all right, Brandon. Yeah, you guys have some good ones. I like that with the dice counting. I can use the same one. So my heuristic is I have a deployment plan uh, for offense or defense, and I have to decide pretty early on if I'm going on offense or defense. And some of the games I've lost were games where I went on offense when I didn't need to um, or didn't deploy defensively enough, uh, which I guess is the same thing. That was the pattern I noticed. So I've changed my strategy to be more defensive recently but step one have have two deployment plans at the very least uh step two um research the things that you expect in the meta and have a plan for them built into your list so you don't want to show up to a table where you're you have one really important character and then your opponent goes first and their nine raven guard eliminators kill all your characters um that would suck. So having a plan for that, if your list really relies on characters, um, is a good start, number one. Um, Well, actually, that's number two. So have deployment plans, have plans for very common list archetypes. um, And then the third one was try and come up with as many mental shortcuts as you can. So for example, another mental shortcut I have is one infantry squad in rapid fire equals one dead space marine equivalent. So there you go. If there's five space marines, I need the equivalent of uh, 50 guardsmen in rapid fire to get rid of them, assuming they're in the open. <laughs> Actually, that's, that's, uh, that's quite a lot a of shooting. <laughs> that's, so, that's quite quite a bit. That's My bef- marines don't die. My marines take like three guardsmen to kill. Well, so. <laughs> that's the thing is that's before orders. So every time you issue oh, a first rank fire, second rank fire order, now that squad counts double. Oh, okay. Well, that's better. So if you can have very quick and dirty heuristics like that, it's like, oh, okay. And then if I'm shooting um, a toughness six plane that has a three up save, 
I do half as much damage. So I need two squads in rapid fire to do one wound um, before accounting for negative to hit modifiers. So that's the kind of thing you can have in the back of your mind to be like, okay, if this, if this really common unit in my army shoots really common things in the game, I already know approximately how many I need to do how much damage. So deployment, have a plan for specific enemy models, and have very quick and dirty heuristics for what your stuff does. Um, Agreed. Go ahead. Do you have any? Do you have your the rest so of your my, top three? So yeah, the second one that I have is I always use uh, very clear um, wound counters for my models. Make sure that I that me and my opponent know exactly how many wounds are left. And in terms of counters in general, I also make sure, especially if I'm running an army like Venom Spam, is I make sure I have a way to designate or to show what which one of my units has fired and which one has not uh it also in even going as far as making sure that i have a different marker for a unit say inside of a transport and a unit outside of a transport so when i'm doing you know when i when i was running a list that had 12 venoms in it and each unit had a unit inside I was definitely I had dice designating the guys inside and the venom and I was able to quickly go okay this unit has fired and because it's this color of dice I know it was the tank and I, and then I'd put it by the unit then I could put a different colored dice or marker next to the unit to be like the guys inside have now fired and it just made sure that my shooting phase was very very fast and it and it stopped me and my opponent from getting confused as the game went on uh, and then do you have a final heuristic? Yeah, and I'd want to say um I'd want to say the final one in terms of like mentality wise is just I never ever look at the dice and go, "Oh man, that was a great roll" or "Oh man, that was a terrible roll." Like I understand what a good roll or a bad roll is, but I never give especially bad rolls life. I don't like giving bad rolls the the benefit of just making me waste like mental power on them so yeah. you know i i i literally just let it let it happen as is you know it is what it is it's the dice rolls are either going to happen or they're not so i don't let the dice dictate my mental state in game and and yes every like good competitive play we're like well you can't blame the dice and this and that but once you notice like how much weight even just going and going oh man that was a good roll or oh man that was a bad roll will do to you over the course of an entire event or an entire tournament and how much time and effort you're putting into it it becomes quite like it it it's it's a big deal like you use a lot of energy just focusing on that stuff yeah i think managing your emotions is is also really important is actually a really big skill that uh, people tend to undervalue uh, if if you look at uh a friend of mine, Neil R., uh, he's a snooker player, a professional snooker player, a professional full player, pool player. Um, he's not necessarily out there doing flips, uh, you know, doing backflips and doing these really physically strenuous things. However, a lot of what their game is, is, you know, mental exercises, keeping your emotions in check, 
And if you talk to Neil, he's a really positive, optimistic guy. And I just, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not, I'm not, I don't pretend to know that I know what it takes to be a professional snooker player. I'm sure he does. Um, but I do recognize like, uh, like a, a, an emotional, uh, like efficiency or, or, you know, just they, those guys always keep their cool. They're always very gentlemanly. Uh, and there's gotta be something like an emotional state that you have to get into to perform that well in that kind of game. Uh, NFL kickers, if you keep up with football are the same way. They're playing a completely different game than everyone else. They have to get themselves into a very specific emotional state to perform well. Uh, and so managing your emotions is a, is a big aspect of competition and a big aspect of doing well um, in games. So, that's pretty cool. Uh, for for my final two, um, I'm just gonna keep this really quick. I have one that I personally do. I, I tend to uh, often, I tend to often uh, suffer from um, over overthought or over decision making. Um, basically, I, I try to get really cute, um, and I uh, give myself a ton of options for when I'm making decisions, specifically in the movement phase or the deployment phase. Uh, so a general rule of thumb I have is I keep all my units together. Uh, and I just try to be as uncute as possible. And what I mean mean by cute is like, I, I I don't go for a hail mary play like my eliminators are gonna take out Abaddon. Like I don't go for that cute play. Theoretically, my eliminators could take out Abaddon, or theoretically, this knight could make this maximum distance charge into their entire line and just win me the game turn one. Um, however, I, I try to stay away from those kind of fringe plays. Uh, and and um, even less so. Uh, even for the fringe plays that are um, a little less obvious or, or maybe they're not quite so extreme, um, I still try to keep out when I'm deploying. Um, I, I try to keep everything, all my units together, uh, and I try to be very conservative um, and just quickly decide, am I going to be aggressive or defensive and then just stick to that game plan. So, And then uh, the final, final heuristic um, is uh, one during army creation. It's very simply, uh, I have a hard time to do the same thing where I'm like a dog with too many choices when I'm building an army. So usually build up a core of my army list, and that's what I build multiple armies around, and I stick to that army. Uh, so it, right now I'm building Space Marines. I've got a Space Marine core of units that I will put into every single list from here until when I feel like I'm sick of playing Space Marines. And then from there I'm just going to build around and add the units that, that I know um, may do well with that core. Um, but I'm always going to work, stick with the core that works for me. And that helps me with sticking with one army and, and practicing it and doing really well. Uh, and, you know, because if you switch different armies, you don't tend to learn your armies as well. So I stick to a core group of units, usually about 1,200 points or so. Sometimes a little, sometimes a little less. All right. So uh, we're going to go ahead and move on to the second topic. Uh, now, Brandon jumped right into this, uh, so I forgot to mention this, which isn't bad necessarily, um, but I just realized I forgot to introduce the second topic or the the back half of the show, and that's we're going to talk about the Faith and Fury Psychic Awakening book. So if you're if you're looking at this, you click on this. I definitely put it in the show notes that we talked about this, but if you're wondering where it was, here it is, 50 eight minutes into the episode. Um, so we're just going to very quickly talk about the uh, the uh, Faith and Fury book. We're going to very quickly go over kind of like what the Space Marines got. Hint, it's very, very powerful. Um, and then Scary plays Black Templar. So we're going to talk about Black Templars and what he likes out of the Black Templars. And then finally, uh, Cliff notes on what we think is going to be good that Chaos Space Marines received. Because I, I do have a list of a couple things I, I pecked out and read carefully. 
Um, however, I didn't read every rule in the Chaos Space Marine Codex so that, or in the Chaos Space Marine side of Faith and Fury. Um, so that is where uh, Scarry can help tune in there. But there's a lot of really good stuff in this book. Overall, I'm really happy with it. Uh, I'm kind of bummed that Space Marine's got something uh, on the eve of already receiving all these supplements. Uh, and I don't say that just as a Space Marine player, but as a 40k player, as someone who loves the community, um, because it does feel like Space Marines just keep getting more and more and more things. And to me, perception is very important. So that's it. I'll leave that with that. So let's talk about the Masters of the Chapter stuff first. So first and foremost, if you're unfamiliar, there's a uh, an upgrade for every HQ choice now in the Space Marine Codex. There's things like the Chief Librarian, the Master of Sanctity, which is like the Master Chaplain, the Master of the Forge, uh, and then the Chief Apothecary, uh, and then the Chapter Ancient and Chapter Champion. So uh, if you're familiar with Space Marines from past editions, there were options to upgrade HQ choices so that they uh, became, you know, more powerful. They... And that's to signify that, you know, this particular space marine is a hero of their chapter. They go above and beyond the normal space marine uh, of their stature. So uh, each of these to upgrade is going to cost you one CP. Um, However, all you need is a Battleforge army, obviously, and then one, uh, any number of space marine detachments. So you don't need an entire army of space marines. You just need a space marine detachment. Um... And then you get access to each of these special stratagems, which also in turn unlocks uh, the warlord traits and relics that each one comes with. Uh, so to kind of jump right into it, the the ones that stood out to me were the Master of Sanctity. Uh, the, the Chaplain is already such a good model right now. It's under-costed. It comes with a lot of really good litanies. Uh, and on top of this, each chapter got their own specific litany that they can pull from as well. And the Master of Sanctity stratagem upgrades your chaplain so that they can use an additional litany each round. So they get to use two litanies. Previously, the only chaplain that can do that was Chaplain Cassius from the Ultramarines. And that made him really powerful in particular because he had the ability to give you two litanies, which uh, if you've played against Space Marines, you know that gives them the ability for plus two advance and charge, uh, plus one to wound to the shooting or or attacking the nearest enemy unit, uh, and rerolls to hit. It... You know, it's really, really good. Uh, so the Master Sanctity is, is really powerful. They, they get access to a Thrip Invuln, which gives uh, and a Relic, which can give something similar to a Slaplin, um, which is like the Slap Chap. That's the really buffed up Chaplin. You can give them something like a Thrip Invuln, um, because I believe you can give a, a model the Relic, and then you can give them a really good Warlord trait that increases their strength, depending on the, the chapter. Uh, but basically, it gives you more options, and it gives you a pseudo-Smash Captain, uh, and you might even be able to replace your your smash captain with a storm shield with a three up invuln chaplain. Uh, they also get the ability to add three inches to the range of the litanies, uh, and they also get the ability to reroll the litany dice, which is essentially if you're using two litanies every single turn, um, that's you know the equivalent of twelve rerolls or twelve CP, right? If you're rerolling every single one, obviously you're not going to reroll every single one, but if that does happen, you get a bunch of free rerolls, so a bunch of free CP. Uh, which is those. amazing that's so good that's so good so chaplains are already insane i think that for the most part they're a must take in almost every space marine list with the exception of the vehicles iron hands lists the ones that use a lot of dreadnets and even then a chaplain's still pretty good they're not they're not bad they're not terrible no, no i think um faith and fury really adds 
character like i did when i was reading it um and did like a a full review up on the youtube channel Mm, if you want to take a look at it but um it's a i i'm a huge fan the chaplain especially but also the apothecary like the master apothecary has a uh, an ability to take yeah, a warlord trait, I believe, that gives everybody within a six-inch bubble a six-up feeling of pain, like Iron Hands, essentially, like any infantry models. Mm-hmm. Uh, except if they have the Iron Hand chapter tactic, they essentially get a five-up feeling of pain. So good. And then they can re-roll <laughs> ones on it? Uh, it is ridiculous. It's just... Like, I really like it. Marines right now, if you're a Marine player out there, you have Marines, honestly, dust them off. It's there is some cool stuff you can do with them and i highly recommend that you just like you know try it out mm. honestly you yeah. will not be disappointed yeah and then the final one uh that i think is is worthy of noting um not to say that the others aren't good they are good it's just i think the the librarian or the master the chief librarian is one that i we're going to see very often uh and that's uh basically they their chief librarians they get access to the ability to pick powers from any discipline. So if you haven't played Space Marines and you're unfamiliar with this, essentially Space Marines librarians can have access to up to three uh, disciplines. They can access the regular Space Marine one, uh, where Might of Heroes is and Veil of Time is, um, and then they can access their Phobos one if they're a Phobos librarian, and then they can access their specific chapter one if they're a uh, if they're a of a specific chapter. Like the Ultramarines have one. Uh, and so essentially... Uh, I no single discipline has like three amazing powers that you're going to pick every single game. So previously, when you took a librarian, sometimes you'd have to take two just to dip into two disciplines to unlock the full Swiss Army knife array of psychic powers on your opponents. Now you can take one librarian, spend a CP, make them more the warlord, and they have the ability to pick three from three different disciplines that they want to. And this can be so, so powerful. Uh, the librarians, if you pick the right chapter, have access to an insane amount of tools. Uh, and it really makes your librarian very important. Um, on top of that, you can give them a jump pack uh, and give them the option to be another really good beat stick character, uh, depending on the chapter that you pick. So it's just, I honestly think that once you pick your Space Marine chapter master, uh, once your opponents maybe pick their Space Marine chapter master, I think all you really need is, in a lot of those lists, is a chap- a single chaplain and a single librarian, and you're set. I think you have all the buffs that you need. You might want to double down on some buffs, but it's really, really powerful. Now, one thing uh, that you all should note while you're playing your games against Space Marine opponents or when you're playing with Space Marines is that you're not going to be able to take advantage of all of these buffs. Uh, they're almost all on Warlord traits and Relics. All the good ones are. Uh, and if you want to buff your librarians and your chapter masters and your tech marines, uh, it does cost one CP and you can only do it once. So you can't have five chief librarians, you know, going crazy or, or like three masters of sanctities, each casting two or each using two litanies for a total of six litanies a turn. That, yeah. That's just not going to happen. Um, yeah. Ideally though, you've got the, the space, the basic space ring codex has the ability to pick a second warlord, mm-hmm. right? And then each supplement has some sort of way of kind of like either giving a second warlord trait to a character or along those lines as well. So yeah. you can, you can definitely, you know, a lot of, a lot of iron hands players, for example, using the chaplain dreadnought 
for example. So you could have like a master chaplain dreadnought or, you know, things like that. So just keep that in mind. As, and then each of those abilities will really supplement your list well um, based on what you're trying to do with it. Yeah. And um, one other thing to note is that the, the, those specific relics, uh, the ones that give you specific relics for the stratagems, usually it's limited to just a relic out of your supplement. It's not just any relic in, that Space Marines get access to. And it's the same thing with some of the Warlord trait stuffs, like the Ultramarines one. I believe they have the ability to give a second Warlord trait to a character, or maybe that's every supplement. Uh, either way, I believe you can only take a Warlord trait from that specific supplement. Um, so when your opponent is going through, and you should do this for any or every army, but for Space Marines now in particular, when your opponent is going through all of those pre-game upgrades and stratagems and, and all this stuff, make sure that they're doing it all correctly, and then it's all legal. Uh, there's still a lot of random little restrictions in there. I feel like GW is doing a good job of doing their best to limit a lot of this power uh, while still giving us really powerful stuff. So, anyways, uh, Brandon, did you see anything in Space Marines that really jumped out to you? Something that you have to worry about as a guard player or as just a general 40k player who isn't playing Space Marines? I'm just still wrapping my head around the character dreadnoughts, eliminators, and centurions. Okay. Like those three together are such a strong combination. Um, and master artisans combined with eliminators combined with sniper dreads. Um, that's what I'm still wrapping my head around, but maybe I'm still planning for the, the last big thing. And uh, something new is coming. If I missed something as a combination, because I know that for example, iron hands, fire spam is incredibly powerful. Um, and I'm still planning for that as well, but, is there some new combination that all of us who aren't playing Space Marines should be worried about? I think the what the it didn't necessarily shift what is already being used or powerful in the Space Marine meta. What it did is it sort of increases some of the strengths of the of those specific builds. Uh, yeah, I, I do think uh the the White Scars have the White Scars have a specific chaplain litany that gives them re-rolls to wound uh within a six inch bubble of re-rolls to wound for models of that chaplain um which if you increase to nine inches is really powerful because it's the only access that space marines have to re-rolls full re-rolls to wound just with no limitations other than being in the aura range so <clears throat> uh things like uh uh you know certain things have full re-rolls to wound but it's very specific like for salamanders it's flamers and meltaguns for vulcan right so so just a, a nine inch aura of rerolls to wound uh, in the, I believe in the fight phase. Yeah. With a melee weapon uh, can give a lot of units that you wouldn't normally expect to be really powerful. Um, a lot of extra oomph, right? Uh, especially when combined with things like the successor chapter traits that explode on sixes and things like that. Right. Cause then you're just rerolling all the dice. Yeah. So it's, um, yeah. So I think that's in general, I think chaplains are something, that people need to look at, but go ahead, Scary. I agree, chaplains and uh, Black Templar chaplains, especially talking about Templars. As soon as you switch the subject here, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> let's go ahead and talk about Black Templars. For uh, Scary, actually has a Black Templars army that he's um, hopefully going to be putting on the tabletop more often now. I have been playing it a lot off camera. Um, Black Templars were my original army that I started playing the game with, so they have like a. A soft, I have a soft spot for them. 
However, all the named characters did get a buff. You know, they got better, which is uh, really cool. And um, they got access to some really neat stratagems, like the ability to deny Overwatch when charging out a Land Raider Crusader is one of like my the my the fun ones. Uh, you know, an infantry unit charging out a Land Raider Crusader denies just you cannot Overwatch them, and they are minus one to hit in the ensuing fight phase for one command point, which is really good. It's really, for, really powerful. It's really powerful. They also get access to one of the few um, snare um, stratagems where you can deny enemy infantry units from falling back on a two plus. Oh, fantastic. So they get the ability to kind of do that sort of stuff as well, which is really good. There's a couple of things in Faith and Fury, especially on the chaos side, that has that same sort of ability to like tie things down. And that, like the snare, the snare captain, for example, uh, for the white scars or. You know, uh, we all know how, how powerful those witch nets can be in the right situation. Um, but being able to have it with Marines and stop people from falling back and not have to do the crazy hugging, you know, that you normally have to do. And uh, and then uh, the ability to, like, deny psychic powers with, like, a warlord trait or uh, be, like, Grimaldus as a chaplain. He is, he, he is a chaplain that denies psychic powers because <laughs> he just doesn't like psychics very much. <laughs> and I thought that was really fun. But one of the most uh, powerful relics they have is a once per game uh, at the start of the battle round relic where you where it gives all units with a model within three inches a four up invulnerable save. And that, as of now, works on everything from vehicles to infantry. So you could potentially run a giant army of, you know, tanks or land or crusaders or flyers or whatever with four up involves, which is pretty cool. That is really At least cool. for the first turn. Yes. Yeah. I mean, in this meta right now, uh, Space Marines have really upped the AP that's available. So it's not uncommon to find AP 4 or AP 5 now, which basically means if you have an armor save, forget it. You're dead. So being able to give a bunch of 4-up invuls to units that wouldn't have had access to a save under those circumstances... Breathes new life into a lot of units that would have been left off the table otherwise. Yeah, and that's and I like that. Like I, I don't, I don't have all the new Space Marine stuff. I have a lot of the old Space Marine stuff, but it's cool that I feel like even running my old Space Marine stuff, you know, it would definitely not just be a a slobber knocker of a game. Like I would be able to give people a run for their money just with the the new stuff that they've added into that book. Yeah. Now, uh, let's go ahead and move on to the Chaos side, Chaos Space Marine sides. Now, I looked into one faction in particular, uh, and then I kind of briefly glossed over the others and kind of just focused on the what I thought were the most important things or what, what people were telling me were the most powerful things. I know Skari definitely did more research to me on the others' legions. However, I want to focus on one legion who is arguably the biggest benefit benefactor, benefitter, uh, of this of this book, the Faith and Fury book, and that's the Night Lords. Now, I'm not saying that the other legions are necessarily worse off, or, or their powers and their buffs are worse. I'm just saying the Night Lords probably gained the most, considering how far down and how underutilized they were in the game. Not just from a competitive standpoint, but just from a design standpoint. Uh, I think I personally felt like the Night Lords had a, left a lot to be desired from a design standpoint. The fear mechanic, although did make sense from a fluff perspective, 
just wasn't really there. It was kind of awkward. Uh, it wasn't really powerful. Uh, it made sense, but it, it just, I felt like they could have done a lot more with it. And so I was super disappointed when the Night Lord stuff came out in the Chaos Space Rune book. And they just didn't do more beyond, Ooga Booga, we're scary, your leadership goes down. Right? So now with this, with Faith and Fury, Night Lord's got some really cool stuff and some really cool uh, angles from a game design perspective that kind of show off what they do uh, or what they should do in the fluff, and that's instill fear. And so uh, GW's angle here was we're not only going to make Night Lords terrifying, we're going to make them affect your leadership on the battlefield or your leaders and your HQ choices, their ability to lead. Now, they do this in a few key things. Uh, one is uh, Vox Scream, which is a 2CP stratagem, which lets you select one enemy unit within 18 inches of any Night Lord's unit army from your army. And then until the start of your next movement phase, enemy units cannot be affected by any of that selected unit's aura abilities. That is that is awesome. That is insane. Uh, especially if your opponent has a specific warlord or something that has multiple stacking aura abilities. Uh, it's really, really good. Um, you do it at the end of your movement phase, so you can't do it reactively to your opponent when they're when they're dropping down and they're doing their thing, so it won't help so much for charge auras coming out of deep strike. However, if your opponent is setting up a lot of really powerful things that are obvious that require them being on the tabletop, i.e. chaplains. Uh, you can always Vox Scream their chaplain. Boom, their chaplain is, is basically useless. Their litanies that they rolled, not going to do anything. Uh, which is which is huge because of how big of a linchpin some of these aura ability units are for their armies. Think like Shadow Sun. Uh, actually, I think Shadow Sun's doesn't have an I think that's just... Uh, I think she just monk caused twice or something. Never mind. Uh, but think about Ethereals uh, and their ability to... Um, their ability to, you know, uh, give the leadership buffs. Also, um, if I'm reading this correctly, you can also use this on drones, on large drone units. So, like, drone controller, a large unit of 10 drones. I believe the Savior Protocols is an aura ability uh, because they have to be within a certain amount of inches of the model, um, which means that you can, if I'm reading this correctly, and Brandon and Scar, maybe you can help me out here. You'd be able to turn off drone controller or uh, savior protocols on drones, which, if you can do that, gives Night Lords a huge advantage to Tau. Oh, by the way, Night Lords have more advantages to Tau that we're going to talk about, um, but we don't need to talk about that one right now. And then finally, the other relic or the other ability for them to affect uh, leadership on the battlefield is the Vox Demonicus, which, uh, if your model holding this relic is within six inches of an enemy with an aura ability, their aura ability's range gets reduced to one inch, which is, is huge. Especially if you're within six inches, you're probably in combat, you're already probably limiting your opponent's ability to move around and maximize the units around that aura. So reducing that aura to one inch when they can't just be within one inch of that model freely is huge. It's it's really, really powerful. Um, Scar, I felt like you were going to say something. Yeah, it's um, something that I feel a lot of people might realize is you can also use it for things like infiltrators. So all of a sudden, uh, being at the end of the movement phase and you get to choose what happens, you can shut off an infiltrator's deep strike denial bubble and then bring in your deep strikers. I believe it says only enemy units cannot be affected by the selected units or abilities. So I believe your units would still be affected. Um, uh, I think it just says it shuts off their abilities. 
Okay. So you may not use any aura abilities. I'm, I, I have, I, I don't have the book handy. It's usually like right here, but I yeah. took it upstairs. I do, I do have the book on me. Let me just turn to the page. Yeah. Because okay. if not, then I will eat my words. All right. Uh, and box I'm sorry for sending you all astray. <laughs> it's okay. Use the stratagem at the end of your movement phase. Select one enemy unit within 18 inches of any Night Lord's units from your army. Until the start of your next movement phase, enemy units cannot be affected by any of the selected units or abilities. Okay, so yep. it's a shut it off of friendly stuff. Okay, yeah, which Makes sense. which is really which is still really. Could you imagine if you're all of a sudden your infiltrators, you can infiltrate within you know twelve inch, nine inches of them instead of twelve. Ooh, that would be powerful. That'd be really, that'd be really powerful. But um, it, it's still really really strong. Uh, and then uh, obviously the Vox Demonica. So Scary, why don't you talk about the other thing that they have that Nightlord's got that make them really really good against Tau. Well, they get the ability to um, tie people up. I'm not exactly sure what you're talking about. Oh, that, that you got it. You got it right on. The yeah. the warp talents. So yep. warp talents. I, I might as well. Yeah, yeah. So um, but what I'm talking about is is uh, they have a stratagem called uh, "We Have Come for You," uh, and then you use this at the start of your opponent's movement phase, and um, you select one of the Night Lord's units, and then enemies within one inches cannot fall back. Unless they have the vehicle or Titanic keyword, so this includes Riptides who have the monster keyword uh, and drones which have neither the vehicle nor the Titanic keyword. Um, it, it's so good. It, it's you you know uh, the Taka in the town is already you get a unit of warp towns, you drop them down, you or you can warp time them up. Uh, you give them a good insane charge distance. They charge. They can't be overwatched, and then you pop this stratagem on them. And you're tying up a you know a gun line or whatever with a ten man strong unit of warp talents, right? Who are oh by the way in the meantime chewing up your opponent's units and have characters you know because chaos I think chaos space marines still have the most powerful characters in the game uh, and you have these powerful characters running up the board demon princes lords on jump packs or bikes just you know who can't be shot at. Uh, by the rest of your opponent's army because you have these warp talents in their face that can't be shot at because they're in close combat with something. It's it's so good. It's so powerful. And it's cheap. You just take a unit of warp talents in your Night Lord's attachment with some characters, maybe some troop choices if you want some CP. Boom. Done. And this works well against Iron Hands and stuff too. Well, maybe not vehicles, but you get my point. <laughs> it's really, really good. You know, it's definitely one of those things that is going to make a big difference to the like the ability and i feel like you know chaos themselves like they might not necessarily have a lot of the you know fanfare of taking an entire army of a specific chapter or whatever but chaos definitely benefit from taking a variety of different things in like a mix like a suit more like anything you know like demons and chaos and space marines and all kind of put together in like a in like a soup with each sort of element assisting the next element and i like that you know adding in a detachment of night lords so they can go in and like trap your opponent and you know that sort of thing i think is really cool yeah to absolutely have that ability you know no i agree 100% uh before we move on to the other legions, Skari, uh, Brandon, do you have anything you want to add to this? Um, I don't know if this is the first time you've heard of this particular strategy, uh, but we'll, as a guard player, as a player 
you know, looking at the meta, what do you think about this particular strategy and um, the GW adding these rules to the rules pile? It feels like the beginning of 8th edition again, where people could build armies that would just be in your face turn one and remove you from the board. Um, I know Space Marine, White Scars, and Raven Guard both have that ability, and I know this isn't quite that, but what you need to realize is um, they're bringing back incentives for people to bring screens, but then they're also making it so that those screens can be tied down more easily. Even if you have the fly keyword, for example, Tau Drones, now you can't fall back. Um, so I think that having mobility is going to be super important, and or having the ability to walk into melee with whatever charged your screen and remove it. Because um, at least then it's a back and forth of, I remove your unit, you remove mine. Um, but if you don't have a plan for this, um, you're not going to have a good time. So you need to have a plan for, stuff comes in from Deep Strike or charges me turn one and I can't run away. Now what? Yeah, yeah. And... In, in, um... This is going to lead to a lot of innovation around screens. Uh, we already kind of started seeing that a little bit in 8th edition, and then the Castellan list kind of hit, and everyone stopped because the Castellan would just blow away all the screens. Um, but, you know, it'll be interesting to see where people go. Uh, I know you went to Chimeras, which I know aren't necessarily always a good screening unit, but they can potentially screen against certain random armies. Uh, and you also have things like Wave Serpents that were being talked about being used as screens. Or cheaper vehicles with the fly keyword make really, really good screens. Um, but it, it'll be interesting to see where people come from. And, and you're right. I think a countercharge element is extremely important for most armies now. If you want to do well, you need the ability to get your opponent's you know, Alpha Strike charge units out of your deployment zone. Uh, make them so that they're not an issue anymore. Then it has to be in the charge phase because you can't shoot at them, especially Warp Talents. Now, Warp Talons also have the added benefit of of basically um, guaranteeing that they're not going to get shot at by by uh, locking down at least one enemy unit. So they, as long as they tag one enemy unit with the stratagem, they're guaranteed not to be shot at. Uh, and then they just kill another unit or something. So it'll be interesting to see where people go in terms of their screens. But I think screen innovation is something that um, people are going to start doing. Uh, all right, uh, Scary. Were there other any other Legion rules that stood out to you uh, that you know people are going to be using more of? I think uh, Alpha Legion got some really cool stuff um, with their ability to you know redeploy and their ability to um, have like like Alpha Legion have the ability to have a character that's like minus three or minus four to be hit, which is pretty crazy. Um, which means they could have like a demon prince running around that's like very hard to kill in close combat um, with the ability of like a warlord trait and a relic and all this stuff. And I think that's definitely going to be something that's that we'll see, to be honest. Um, I, and I like, I, and, yeah, and that and the re, anything that gives you like redeploys and stuff like that is is extremely powerful. Yeah, I agree. Um, I also really like the the stratagem conceal, which is the one that uh, you use it on an Alpha Legion infantry unit, and they get the ability to so that they can't get they get the character ability. They can't be shot unless they're the closest visible target uh, by enemy models. They can't be targeted. Uh, that's that's actually pretty cool. Uh, I like that on um, units of like havoc squads with the the special chain gun thing that that Chaos Space Marines get. 
uh, things like that. Obliterators, um, I believe they're infantry. Maybe not anymore. Not anymore. No? Okay, well, they, they not anymore, but, you know, uh, you can still use it on other good shooting units that maybe have a hard time, you know, surviving turn one or turn two. Yeah, so another like cool one that I like is uh, uh, Empress Children getting uh, some really cool buffs to their uh, to their uh, sonic weapons. They have the ability to, uh, you know, for one command point, make their sonic weapons in a unit plus one strength, plus one damage, which makes uh, blast masters and things like that like really strong. Yeah, yeah, and then um, it's. It's a really, really what they did was they made a lot of the the they took the identity of these legions, these main legions, chaos space marine legions, and, and just made them better. The the you know iron warriors get a really cool stratagem that lets them reduce the AP of a weapon shooting at them, um, which at any iron hands iron I'm sorry iron hands iron warriors excuse me sorry uh, loyalist players who play iron hands. Um, but the Iron Warriors get a really cool stratagem that lets them reduce the AP of a, a weapon targeting an Iron Warriors unit, uh, which can be really, really useful. Um, you know, basically it's plus one to a save. Um, you know, so that's really, really strong. Uh, and then the... the uh, A lot of the characters get really cool access to, like, demon weapons and things that just make the Chaos Space Marine characters even stronger. Uh, one thing that Reese told me that Chaos Space Marine characters lacked was a lot of good customizable relic options for their weapons. Uh, there were Chaos Space Marine characters already had access to a lot of really good abilities so that they were huge beat sticks in close combat, but they lacked some of the like the range of weapons you could take. Uh, now with this supplement or Faith and Fury, it does change that a lot. Uh, so they get access to a lot more weapons, a lot more demon weapons, things like that, uh, that can make them very powerful. Uh, and in general, I think Chaos Space Marines will definitely come back in a big way. They were already pretty strong against Loyalist Space Marines and stuff. They have they have the ability to go toe-to-toe with them um, with help. They had the ability to go toe-to-toe with them with help. Um, so I think this will make them really good. Yeah, I think uh, it'll be nice. If you're a Chaos player out there, make sure that you send in your ideas. Let us know what you're thinking. And uh, hopefully you start like cooking up some really cool stuff. Absolutely. And if you think, of course, that uh, what I'm saying is absolute craziness, uh, I understand completely. Uh, I am a crazy person who doesn't always say accurate things every episode, actually. So <laughs> anyways, um, so if you want to, if you have another question or if you have any other interesting insights, maybe things we missed, uh, you can always email me, frontlinegamingpdpob at gmail.com, or you can go into the YouTube comments, go to frontlinegaming.org, comment in there on the blog, uh, or any of the comments on Apple Podcasts or anything like that. Uh, I try to read all of them as best as I can. Um, so if you have any questions you want to get a hold of us, go to that. So like we mentioned earlier on, at the end of every episode, we like to open the floor to the patrons so that they can ask questions of us. And so that is what we're going to jump into. Once again, if you would like to contribute to the podcast, if you like what we do here and want to support us, go to patreon.com slash chapter tactics where you get some neat perks. All right. So, First question is, uh, Kane wants to know who's going to paint Brandon's sisters. Um, great question. I still don't know. Um, my teammate Colin had does painting tutorials, and I thought I'd give a 
shot at seeing how complex it is to really get a tabletop standard model that looks fantastic. Um, if that doesn't work, maybe I'll have Frontline paint it. Who knows? Ooh. Uh, second, Nathaniel wants to know, uh, do do we have any thoughts on the new Sisters rules so far? So I'm actually going to ask Brandon that question, and then has a secondary question. Uh, for They want to know about our pregame or pre-tournament rituals or any things that we go through as like a final prep before tournaments or games. Um, so, Brandon, thoughts on the Sisters rules? And Skari, what are some pre-game or pre-tournament rituals that you like to go through? So I guess I'll start. Um, first of all, there's a mix of, wow, that looks nice, and uh-oh, um, not sure how good this is in the Sisters Codex. So for example, um, there's a lot of really solid shooting, but it's all very middle range. So for example, I believe the Heavy Bolter is the longest ranged weapon for most of the Codex, unless you count the uh, Missile Launcher. So this is a very middle-range army. They're going to try and move into the middle of the board and blast you. Um, and they do have melee options, but the melee options coincidentally don't benefit from orders. So they're all the uh, penitent engines and uh, the arcoflagellants. I mean, yes, you can get characters. So you can have a Canoness or Celestine running around. Celestine also doesn't benefit from orders. Um, but for the most part, if you want to beat someone up, you're not a sister order, you're a Repentia machine. So it's going to be really interesting because I think that you can make a reasonably tough advance up the board with sister's army because, uh, you know, a bunch of T3, three-up armor saves is actually reasonable in this meta, I think. Um, and their damage output is okay. But then it's we're coming back to Night Lords and White Scars and Raven Guard again. It's like, okay... All your strength three sisters are tied up in melee. Um, now what? So it's going to be really interesting to see what the uh, meta shakes out to be. Also, Miracle Dice, those are going to be really powerful in my hands. I will tell you that right now. Um, Anything that takes away that the, the dice variance is, is incredibly strong. There are a few games where I finished with one CP left and then used that CP to D3 a morale test so that one or two guardsmen survive and hold an objective that otherwise wouldn't have been held. I understand being able to shift a die roll just enough to pass. So even those twos, threes, fours that you roll with Miracle Dice, if a four is just enough so one model still holds the objective, you know I'm using it. Um so the Miracle Dice mechanic is going to be really cool. It's going to be powerful, um, but I don't think it's going to be so powerful that it breaks the game. It's just going to be another thing that um, is a cool mechanic because it's, it's just another good mechanic. It's not something that on its own is going to completely invalidate the game. So my impressions so far are uh, the Codex looks like it'll be well-balanced, fun to play and different from other 40k armies narratively uh, model wise and the way they play on the table so all of that is really good now are you going to switch directly from astro militarum to sisters or are you going to find a combination of the two that remains to be seen because i don't have the codex in my hands um, i've seen some reviews but until i get a chance to study it um, and really think on what's possible 
Um, I'm not sure. So in the beginning, it'll probably be a combination. So I'm trying out packages like, okay, what does this battalion do? What does this Vanguard do? And just add it to an existing list archetype that I have and practice with it. Um, but there's also the issue of painting and building a completely new army. So who knows how long that will take. Um, in the meantime, I'm still having a great time playing Guard. So uh, I would anticipate still playing that by the time LVO rolls around. But we'll see what happens after that. All right. Uh, now, Scari, pregame rituals or pre-tournament rituals that you'd go into? When I'm going to get ready for tournament the night before, I always make sure I set up my whole army. I fix like broken little antennas and little blades and stuff that might have fallen off at some point or during playtesting or whatever. Uh, then I make sure that my uh, little satchel has all the pregame stuff I'm going to need to play the game. Uh, and I have my dice and everything else as well, ready to rock and roll. And uh, and then I have my just I let it set it all up. I pack it up, put it all on the table, and it's literally waiting for me for the morning. So in the morning, I'm not rushing around trying to like remember stuff and things like that. And I think that a lot that you know, and then I get a good night's sleep. Hmm. I just make sure that I I get I get enough sleep. I just rest. Perfect. <clears throat> All right. Uh, the next question goes out to any of the panelists. Uh, do we find that we have an advantage playing against opponents that aren't as uh, famous or well-known as us? Uh, for example, players being more nervous or making mistakes that they might not have made against another uh, player who is less recognizable. Um, I will. I will. I'd like to start with this one and then open it up to you two. <clears throat> Because I think we've all had experience where we've played people who might have known us, uh, you know, either they consumed our content or they heard us uh, online on a podcast somewhere. Uh, in general, it, it it has happened to me where, where players play a tighter game, uh, where they try to make less rules mistakes, um, you know, try to in enforce the fact that they're not cheating. Uh, the only time I've ever played someone where their nerves got so bad was... Uh, that they actually directly lost because of it was uh, the Throne of War GT this year in Hawaii. I played against a really nice guy that I got to hang out with in Hawaii named Chris. Uh, and we played, I think it was the first round of the tournament. Uh, and he was running uh, almost a carbon copy of Jeff's old list with a little bit of tweaks. Um, if you remember the Triple Caladius list with uh, Guard and stuff. It was a really good list. Um, and it's a list that I've lost to multiple times with my Knights. Um, however... Turn one, unfortunately, the game looked like it was mostly, uh, he was mostly on the back foot after turn one, uh, just because he made a simple deployment error. Um, and when I was talking to Chris, it, it was evident that he knew who I was. Uh, he, he was kind of nervous. Um, and we talked about it afterwards and he was definitely nervous and made a little bit of mistakes. Um, so, so yeah, it, it has happened. Although, uh, I try to, I try to generally be as really cool and friendly as possible. Um, because I didn't really don't want to win the game that way. But anyways, Brandon and Scary. Scary. Well, uh, it has happened to me, especially at LVO and going to places like Attack X and other, you know, being a content producer, content creator online. Uh, and I try to make sure that when I'm playing the game, you know, it's I, I try to be as friendly as possible. And I try to make sure that my opponent's having as much fun as myself. But in terms of me playing someone who I knew was a really good player, um, I try and just play the best game I can. And I don't like psych myself out because I know I can do it. And it's one of those things where I just kind of, because you end up playing so much and practicing so much, you sort of 
end up relying a lot on just muscle memory to get things done. I find when it comes to like uh, games, especially at tournaments or against like more experienced players than yourself, you know, that have been in the tournament scene a lot longer than you have or whatever. And, uh, and so I just try to make it, make it the best game that I can really. Uh, and then <clears throat> Brandon, you have a unique perspective in that. Um, I think you've been on stream. You're the single player I've seen the most on stream out of any 40k player that I know. Um, or maybe that's just me personally, but uh, you've been on stream a lot. Uh, do you have you ever felt that there that you played someone where there's added pressure about playing like the Brandon Grant and on stream? Has that ever happened to you, or or just in general? Oh, absolutely, multiple times, um, including some times where uh, I played people who weren't on stream. So, for example. At the Nova Open in 2018, I played Eric Scrivens, and the uh, staff was like, hey, do you guys want to be on stream? I'm like, I don't mind. And Eric's like, I've never been on stream. This is not, I, I don't want my first time on stream being against Brandon. So <laughs> we didn't end up on stream, and we had a great time. Later, he told me that he ended up on stream for the first time and had a great time on stream, but I think it would have been too much newness all at once because he knew who I was and playing on stream for the first time, it would have been a bit much. So yeah, there can be an advantage, especially for players who've never been on stream before. Um, like playing my teammate Mike Snyder at LVO on stream. I think the thing that took the nervousness away from that, though, was that we knew each other so well. It was like, yeah, let's have another great 40k game, because uh, we've played so many times, so that helped. But yes, there have been times where people know who I am and they get super nervous or we play on stream and they've never played on stream, but mm -hmm. there's a first time for everything. And again, uh, I think I responded directly <clears throat> to this. It's, um, it's, I try and say, look, just play as well as you can and forget everything that's not on the table right here in front of you. Hmm. Now, really quick, um, because I, I would like to hear this perspective from you too. Have you ever played someone and felt really nervous about who you were playing uh, because you knew them, you know, beforehand or they had a bit of a reputation uh, that preceded them um, for Scar or Brandon? Uh, if it, I would just have to say it was Alex Harrison at, uh, at LVO this year. And for me, it was uh, Nick Natavati, who I have yet to beat. I played him yeah, in Nova I, 2018. Yeah, I played I played him in Nova in the Invitational round one, uh, and that was definitely a, a game I, I hyped myself for um, and hyped myself out a little bit on. <clears throat> All right, so let's go and, uh, go on to uh, this is this is a question that's kind of hard to answer, um, but I'm gonna a ask it anyways of you two. Uh, uh, TJ would like to know uh, from the host some tips that that we use to quickly identify threats from other armies on the battlefield. Uh, so not necessarily knowing your homework beforehand, uh, but looking at a game, maybe looking at the deployment and quickly assessing what the threats are. So any tips there? Uh, scary. There's an age old andage in 40 K that says shoot the, the killy stuff and kill the shooty stuff or whatever. Hmm. Um, where, you know, so just kind of something as simple as just knowing what, in your opponent's army is for close combat and what in your opponent's army is for shooting can be super valuable and then kind of understand if you need to make sure that your opponent 
like what units in your army are going to win you the game and make sure that your opponent can't uh, kill them, hmm. essentially. And then kill the things that can kill the things that <laughs> you're going to use to kill his army, essentially. Yeah, that that makes perfect sense. Um, I'm not joking either. It sounded like it, like it would be one of those things that doesn't quite make sense, but makes total sense if you play 40k. Um, <clears throat> all right. Uh, uh, Tim wants to know how has Brandon used his methodology to improve his game, and then can this be applied to playing a new army more efficiently? Um, so he's just talking in general, uh, Brandon. Um, how have you kind of used your analytical approach to the game to improve, and then? Can you take this analytical approach to playing a new army and playing more efficiently? I think that we could do an entire episode on this. Yes. The Cliff Notes version is take responsibility for every failure, even if something ridiculous with the dice happened. Because you yeah. must accept that the dice are outside of your control and they are going to attempt to screw you over now and then. It's a statistical impossibility that they won't. So just figure out what can I do as a player, what can I control to do better next time, and accept that you will lose games, but also accept that you have some control over the outcome. So just focus on that. All right. Uh, Tristan wants to know, uh, do we have any uh, plans for um, or tips or shortcuts for making deployment easier? Uh, he has serious brain farts when he hits deployment, um, like he has a good plan, but then Jesus takes the wheel when he starts setting up with actual units. And this is actually something that happens to me too, so I'm interested to hear what you two have to add to that. So as a guard player, um, make sure that the front line of your army is not able to be charged turn one by stuff that starts on the board, if at all possible. <clears throat> Unless you're facing, you know, warp time with chaos, in which case, sorry, they can charge the entire board. Um, in which case, uh, you want to make sure that your first line is more than three and a half or so inches in front of everyone else. So that way, if they come in from reserve, uh, units behind the front line can't be declared as a charge. And then you want your second line tight enough that they can't fit between it and tie them up. Um, and then you need a melee unit somewhere in your list so that, well... If your front line does get charged, you have a response. And if you have all those pieces, that's a great way to deploy a guard army. But I'm sure Skari has something different in mind. So in terms of set deployments and whatnot, um, I it really depends on who I'm playing. But for each deploy, what I do is I really take a look at, because Dark Eldar work mostly in the movement phase, a lot of this, the choices I make are designed with the movement phase in mind so where is my archon going to be with the reroll hits and wounds aura after his first movement phase you know based on that where can i physically deploy my ravagers to make sure that with one movement they can be in range of his aura if i want to go left or right or if my opponent goes first or second and can i hide everything can you know what is what is what am I willing to sacrifice to make sure that I can get to where I need to go? You know, uh, and then the other thing is don't be lazy with your movement. I think is one of the biggest things that, you know, more often than not, I see people 
like make a move or um uh finish a move or whatever only to go ah that's good enough you know when they're like playing gene steel cult or something and then only to have the gene steel cult player just make every charge or get his little kelomorph in there to kill all your characters because you decided to uh to just say ah that's good enough be precise exactly yep. don't just say that's good enough like always always just double and triple check your stuff perfect now finally uh jason wants to know what is a good heuristic for making the psychic phase go smoother uh he plays thousand suns and he feels like he's a bit overwhelmed by all the choices that Gosh. thousand suns have uh, i personally cannot <laughs> i personally don't step have step one do what Scarry did, have cards and tokens so you can actually keep track of who cast what power on what target so you don't double cast or run out of powers. Otherwise, I mean, my best advice is have a plan for what psychic powers you want for what matchups so you don't take 15 minutes figuring out what each psyker is going to have. Probably just taking the same powers on the same psychers over and over and over again is a good start to make it simple. Um, and then Always cast the reroll power first. Always. Yep. Gaze. <laughs> gaze. Always, always gaze first. And secondly, don't try get fancy with your psychic powers. Just like just stick to a system. This guy with all the buff powers. This guy with all the attack powers. This guy with these kind of powers. Don't don't try be fancy. Just just make sure that it it goes smoothly and quickly. Beautiful. All right, so that's it for all the Patreon questions, uh, and that's it for the episode. Um, once again, if you'd like, if you're interested in supporting the podcast, go to Patreon.com/slash/ChapterTactics. Now, if you are, are like me and you love the sound of Scary's voice, think he's a real gentleman and a class act, Scary, where can they hear more from you? So you can always head over to the YouTube channel at Scardcast on YouTube, where I put up videos every week. I also do a live paint stream on Twitch every day which is at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. He also does, does Meta Mondays, uh, and he has a review of the full a full review of the Faith and Fury book. So if you felt like we didn't cover enough of it, you want to hear more about it or hear more of Scary's takes, you can check that out. He also has a Patreon, and support him. Why, thank you, Pablo. I appreciate it. Uh, and then, of course, go to 40kstats.com. And consider supporting uh, Peter over at 40kstats.com. They did just recently start a Patreon, uh, and Peter is too modest to say, but um, there are, there are, he is spending a lot of time on the stats, and uh, it's, it's done a great service for our community. Uh, and I think that if you had to choose one person to support in our community, even though there are so many wonderful people, uh, I would choose Peter because he's not only awesome, uh, but he's also providing great service to us so check that out you can also go to frontlinegaming.org check us out at the frontline gaming podcast network buy lots of cool stuff don't forget the black friday sales going on uh and then finally now uh, one quick shout out to a sponsor of the podcast rum runner display boards and, and commissions i think i got that wrong um <laughs> uh but mr uh, derek who also happens to be a patron of the podcast is having uh is Atoria Games' second last chance GT. That's a part of the War Masters series, um, which, which is uh, another series uh, that we're seeing a lot more pop up, where it's a kind of a regional event where the person who does the well of all the War Masters series tournaments gets a prize. And that's something that's really cool that I like seeing more people do in tournaments. So 
check that out if you're going to be in the Arizona area uh, or if you're looking for a last chance GT before the LVO, which is going to be in January 4th. Not the LVO. The LVO is not going to be January 4th. The last chance GT is going to be in on January 4th. All right. Because it is your last chance. Yeah. Uh, and then, Brandon, is there any is there any shout-outs you want to give? Not at this time. Perfect. Thank you so much for listening. You're all the best listeners in the world. And as always, have a good one. Bye.